to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Justice series, justice series. You know, I, I start off most series with a goal or a tagline, and uh, this is the goal and the tagline for this series on justice. Is this, is to make the invisible kingdom visible. The invisible kingdom made visible. I believe that we can demonstrate and express the kingdom of God through justice. Through meeting social needs, through caring for the poor, through standing with the broken, the lost, the desolate, the disenfranchised, we can express the kingdom of God. And in moments, we can make this kingdom visible. And through justice, we can endeavor to make the invisible kingdom visible. And we're going to talk more about that. We're going to learn more about that in the coming weeks. Are we good? All right, let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for the privilege of learning from your word this morning. Lord, we thank you. Also for the privilege of partnering you in seeing your kingdom established on the earth. Lord, we do not take this privilege lightly. Lord, we ask that you will indeed challenge us by your word. And Lord, you will empower us by your spirit to be your hands and feet to a broken world that is so in need of you. Lord, we ask today that even as we dive into your word, Lord, that we may be like the two on the road to Emmaus, that our hearts will burn even as we dive into your scripture, even as we hear from your words this morning, Lord, that our hearts will burn with a greater passion, a greater zeal, a greater desire to do your kingdom work. Lord, move us out of apathy and into action, Lord. Lord, we ask that today we will not be satisfied with mere words, with mere knowledge, but Lord, we will be compelled to action. Lord, use us as your hands and feet. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I'm going to lay down uh, the biblical foundation for justice and next few weeks, like I said, different people are going to come in and they're going to share more about the topic. So today is the heavy one. Okay? Are we good? Are we awake? Yes? September has ended. Wake up. Okay. <laughs> Pop culture reference. <clears throat> Parents who don't know, ask your kids. Okay. Uh, are we good? You totally miss it. <laughs> Signs of age, man. Signs of age. <laughs> In his autobiography, Surprised by Joyce, C.S. Lewis related that one of his problems with Christianity was the unknowability of God. If God is who he says he is, how is it possible for a human to know him? Lewis used this example of the character Hamlet, the hero of Shakespeare's play. How could Hamlet, the fictional prince, ever know Shakespeare, his creator? It is seemingly impossible for the two worlds to meet. Do we agree on that? But Lewis realized that there was a way for Hamlet to meet his creator, Shakespeare. Shakespeare would need to write himself into his own play. If Shakespeare was a, crea- was a character in the play Hamlet, then the character Hamlet could meet him and begin to understand him. And that is what happened at the first Christmas. God wrote himself into his own story through the person of his son, whom John's gospel calls the word, and this was cause of great joy. God wrote himself into the story of creation to make himself knowable so that we can experience relationship with him. The unknowable God became knowable that first Christmas morning. 
But this is, this is a, another observation of that great, uh, you know, I, I believe sacrifice that Jesus partook in. You know, when we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus, we are familiar with it uh, as it pertains to the cross and the pains and the sufferings he went through on the cross. But another sacrifice that Jesus partook in is the sacrifice of being limited and confined to a human body. Jesus was limited even in his godliness, in his human form. In his human form, Jesus thirst, Jesus hungered. Jesus was limited. Jesus existed in only one time and one space. He was not omnipresent. And the ultimate equalizer for all hum- humanity, Jesus dies. And that is as human as it gets. But what to me is fascinating and often overlooked was that Jesus, when he was born into this planet, was not born into a family of privilege, influence, or power. He was not even born into a middle-class family. Jesus was born in underprivileged circumstances. In Proverbs, we see God identifying with the poor symbolically. But in the incarnation and death of Jesus, we see God identifying with the poor and marginal, literally. Jesus was born in a feeding throne. When his parents had him circumcised, the offering they made was two pigeons. And that was prescribed for the poorest class of people in the society. He lived among the poor and the marginalized who were drawn to him even as the respectable were repulsed by him. We see the kind of life he led and he said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. At the end of his life, he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, spent his last evening in a borrowed room, and when he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb. They cast lots for his only possession, his robe. For there on the cross, he was stripped of everything. He died naked and penniless. He had little the world value, and the little he had was taken. He was discarded, thrown away. Even examining the account of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, in John 18, he listed all the ways that the trial was a miscarriage of justice. There was no public notification. It was held in the middle of the night. Jesus was not allowed to defend himself. He was forcibly struck in the middle of the trial. Later, the governor, Pontius Pilate, knew the case was insufficient, but he caved in to political pressure. Finally, Jesus was tortured cruelly and put to death. In all these ways, Jesus identifies with the millions of nameless people who have been wrongly imprisoned, robbed of their possessions, tortured and slaughtered. Many people say, I can't believe in God when I see all the injustice in the world. But here is Jesus, the Son of God, who knows what it's like to be the victim of injustice, to stand up to a power, to face a corrupt system, and to be killed for it. The poor, the oppressed, the victims of injustice meant so much to God that he identified with them, literally. Let's look at this passage of scripture, Psalm 68 verse 5. This is talking about God. It says that he identifies himself as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Realize that how significant is that the biblical writers introduce God as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. And this is one of the main things he does in the world. He identifies with the powerlessness, with the powerless, he takes up their cause. Sirankan scholar Vinod Ramachandran calls this scandalous justice, scandalous justice. And he has this amazing quote. He writes, In virtually all the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society, the kings, 
priests and military captains, not the outcasts. To oppose the leaders of society then was to oppose the gods. But here in Israel's viral vision, it is not high-ranking males, but the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. So from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all other religions as a God on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. And of justice for the poor. And that brings us to this verse in Matthew 25. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Jesus, the Father, the Godhead, literally identifies with the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. And they stand with them. The Bible describes This rightful treatment of the poor, standing for the poor, the oppressed, the victimized, the needy, the disenfranchised, and the displaced. The Bible calls it justice. Justice. A familiar passage of scripture is found in Micah chapter 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, in some translation, to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Usually when people read this verse, they go, do justly. That's a really simple endeavor. All I have to do is not do injustice, and therefore I do justice. But the Hebrew word for act is a lot more aggressive. It will imply to pursue, to advocate, to sacrifice for. It just doesn't cut it to say that you live a life of doing justice just by omitting yourself from injustice. But to live a life of justice means that you advocate for it. You sacrifice for it. You give your time, your talent, your resource in pursuit of it. What does it mean to do justice? Justice is rooted in the character of God, established in the creation of God, mandated by the commands of God, present in the kingdom of God, motivated by the love of God, affirmed in the teachings of Jesus, reflected in the example of Jesus, and carried on today by all who are moved and led by the Spirit. In a broken world full of iniquity and injustice, from human trafficking to racism to gender violence, and from gossip to consumerism to petty anger, can we really treat our lives as gods while navigating the cultural climate of our day? Can we redeem and energize the concept of justice and embrace the fullness of God's plan for creation? Can we expect to find true life and happiness in obeying Him as we seek to give our lives away for others? In week one of our justice series, I'll be speaking about doing justice. Doing justice. Are you with me? Thank you. Justice is the single best word both inside and outside the Bible, for capturing God's purposes for the world and humanity's calling in the world. Justice is, in fact, the broadest, most consistent word the Bible uses to speak about what ought to be. Just as truth corresponds to what is, justice corresponds to what ought to be. Just as truth corresponds to what is, justice corresponds to what ought to be. The Hebrew word for justice in the Bible is the word mishpat. Everybody say mishpat. Mishpat. You know, and mishpat has uh, several meanings. Uh, and, uh, you know, most people understand justice as uh, retributive. You know, it means punishment. It means, uh, 
you know, giving due consequence for certain actions. Or some people understand justice as a reparative. You know, it means uh, paying back. It means uh, giving back what was owed. But the word mishpat in the scripture will imply something different. It means more than that. More often than not, it's implied as a restorative way of living. It means retributive in most cases. Yes, it means reparative. But in scripture and the kind of justice we are called to live out, it is a restorative way of living. That's the kind of justice we are admonished to do in scripture. Justice is not just doing an act of charity. The idea of mishpat is to not live in reaction to need, but actively seek out ways I can bring about God's restoration. That means you keep an eye for the, out for the vulnerable, the broken, and the weak, the ones that are oppressed and disenfranchised, and look for ways that you can better their lives, even at the cost and expense of your own. To restore them to the way they ought to be treated. Not just righting wrong, but restoring mankind to its original state of flourishing. Are you with me? To his original state of flourishing. Eugene Cho is the founder and visionary of One Day Wages, ODW, a grassroots movement of people, stories and actions to alleviate extreme global poverty. It promotes a simple awareness and a simple call to action, which is the giving of one day's wages and it supports sustainable relief through partnerships. And he has this amazing quote on justice. He says this, To do justice means to render to each what each is due. It's based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei, that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. The restorative power of justice is in response to that. That every man, woman, and child, no matter where they're at in life and in faith, has been given inalienable worth and dignity because of what Jesus has accomplished and paid for them on the cross. Jesus didn't die just for a select few people. He died for all of humanity. And because that price was paid, the price and the value of a human being is no longer the sum total of their deeds or what they accomplished in life, but the price and the value of a human being is determined by what Jesus has accomplished for them on the cross. And because God sees humanity, He sees every single human being as worthy, as of value, as of dignity, then we are charged by the way God sees a person, to treat a person in the same manner. And that's what doing justice is. Justice is a product of kingdom culture. It is doing what is good and right towards others, as well as righting the wrongs that have been done to people. It's giving people what they are due and coming against anything that denies people what they are due. Are you following me? Justice describes both our rights, what we are owed, and our responsibilities, that, we are, that, we, that, that which we owe others and God. Justice is broad enough to speak about truth, love, forgiveness, and grace, and is woven consistently throughout Scripture. It conveys through the prophetic images of Scripture a picture of what God's kingdom will look like and what it can begin to look like now. It lies at the heart of our faith. And it is at the very foundation of the gospel that we preach. The Bible says that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. It says to me one of two things. It says to me that God's reign will be one of justice and righteousness. That justice is not something that will fade away over time. That it's not just a fun little concept or a, a fad that we 
uh, embraced by justice is at the very foundation of this kingdom that we profess to be part of. It's at the foundation of God's throne. Justice and righteousness is the foundation of his throne. But it also says to me that the church is to exist for that same two purposes, justice and righteousness. And righteousness is pretty simple. You know? We exist to be a beacon of righteousness in this world, that we stand as a moral standard through learning from uh, his holy scriptures. We stand and we advocate for God's definition of what morality is. We stand as uh, people who preach the gospel, who preach the righteousness of God, the cleansing blood of Jesus, righteousness. But the church is also to, to exist for justice, to stand for the weak, the oppressed, the poor. It is incomplete, it's an incomplete picture of all we do is stand for righteousness. We speak against sin, we preach the gospel, but do nothing for the poor, for the needy, for the disenfranchised. Justice and righteousness are the foundations of the throne and ought to be the foundations of the church. I'm making sense. If what we do here as a church, okay, the resources that we put into um, the programs and all, all these kind of, kind of things, if what we do here as a church impedes our ability to do justice, then we seriously need to reconsider how we do things. And we seriously need to reconsider even our own spirituality. Justice and righteousness the foundations of the church. James 1, chapter 20, uh, James chapter 1, 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. A biblical commentary on this verse says that biblical justice involves making individuals, communities, and the cosmos whole by upholding both goodness and impartiality. It stands at the center of of true religion, according to James. One of the most prominent places we hear about this subject of justice, uh, this language of justice, is in the realm of politics. The conversation revolves around what the government should do to act justly, rather than what we as individuals should be doing. We are called to do justice. We are called to do justice. And there's a world of difference between doing justice and voting about what the government should do about justice. We are called to aggressively fight for justice in practical ways in our church and in our community to tangibly do justice. There's a difference between voting for justice and reorienting your lives to doing justice. And scripture just doesn't give us an option to do otherwise. The psalmist says of God, your throne, O God, will last forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Throughout history, a scepter has been a near universal symbol of a ruler's sovereign authority of his or her expensive responsibility and power. A scepter defines the kingdom, linking the ruler as a person to the kingdom as a whole. What happens to the kingdom happens to the ruler and vice versa. When Pharaoh carried the scepter of Egypt, not only did he possess absolute authority over Egypt, but Egypt became his primary concern. God's primary concern, his scepter, his sphere of influence, what he cares about, what he burns for, is a kingdom defined by justice. Justice isn't a nice addition, isn't just a nice addition to God's otherwise perfect character. 
If we ignore justice like ignoring love or truth, we create a caricature rather than the divine character we meet in scripture and in our lives. Justice is a hallmark of God, a distinctive and pure feature of his character that defines him and his will for the world. Are you following me? One more passage of scripture. Are you? Are you guys? Thank you. In Psalms 146, God's power as creator is linked to his design for justice to be enacted in his creation, demonstrating that justice is an aspect of his character as foundational as love and truth. Psalms 146, it goes, He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. It says to us that the primary purpose, one of the primary purposes of power is for the purpose of justice. And power is not just limited to signs and wonders, but power can look like influence resources, the ability to connect. What is at our disposal in this day and age? Power to be used for the purpose of justice. Are you following me? I love this summary of what justice is, and this is a long read, but here goes. Justice is rooted in the character of God and flows from the heart of God. Justice is woven into the fabric of God's creation, part of the image of God in every person. Justice is commanded in God's scripture and integral to the promise of the gospel. Justice is incarnated in the life of Jesus, inseparable from his words and deeds. Justice is highlighted in Jesus' concern for the poor and demonstrated in his death and resurrection. Justice is the early church sharing what they had, meeting the needs of others near and far. Next slide. Justice is the saints building hospitals and caring for orphans instead of pursuing worldly wealth and self-interest. Justice is the abolitionists laboring to end transatlantic slavery, recognizing the God-given dignity and worth in each person. Justice is the legacy of those who fought for civil rights who began to dismantle systems of violence and exploitation. Justice is the worth and equality of every person in the land, for we are all God's creation and God's children. Justice is God's grand design for his creation. A hope for every man, woman, and child to flourish in God's kingdom. That is what justice is. Justice. The second time of hearing the word justice, I say it a lot. Don't worry, we'll have some lighthearted bits at the end. Justice. John Perkins, a contemporary of Martin Luther King, in speaking about the church's role as it pertains to the injustices of the world, writes, The church of God is always at its best when it is a community of hope wrapping its arms around a community of pain. I don't have that up, but let me read it again. The church of God is always at its best when it is a community of hope wrapping its arms around a community of pain. We are planted on this earth for a purpose. Do we agree on that? That means that for all our lives, we will be surrounded with opportunities to demonstrate the kingdom of God. That we will be surrounded by pain, by adversity, by darkness, by injustices. And in this span of time called life, we have options 
to either be a contributor or purveyor of these contradictions to the gospel, to be a bystander that turns a blind eye or deaf ear to the cries of the oppressed, or we can choose to do justice. Which one will you choose? Option C is the right one, by the way. <laughs> Let's have uh, my next slide up. And, uh, this is a, uh, one of my favorite art pieces. I've actually used it as a sermon background once, and uh, I wouldn't even uh, attempt to pronounce that word. Amy, how do you pronounce that word? Desus? Desus? It's not Desha. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know whether you can tell, but this is a mosaic of, of Jesus. And... Uh, it's one of my favorite art pieces, and it's for, for many reasons. But this, is, this mosaic is located in a museum in Turkey, which dates from the mid-13th century. In it, the figure of Jesus looks wisely and sympathetically at the viewer, making a sign of blessing with his right hand, his clothes, and a blue robe draped over a golden shirt, and a, and a halo frames his head. And this is how the mosaic was created. To create this mosaic, a picture formed from the careful arrangement of small pieces of colored, glass, stone, or tile. An artist painstakingly added color and form bit by gleaming bit until the shape of Jesus began to emerge. Centuries later, visitors continue to take delight in this mosaic, every piece of stone working together in a stunning whole. That's how the mosaic was formed. And now, let's do a a simple thought experiment. Imagine if I were to go to uh, Turkey uh, next week and I walked up to this beautiful mosaic known as one of the most beautiful uh, art pieces in the world. And I walked up to this mosaic, and uh, when no one's looking, I took out a little pocket knife, and I just, you know, began to gel and pull out a piece of uh, a glass, I pull out a shard of glass. And I brought it back home to Singapore, and I go to uh, uh, the table outside, and I get all of you, and as I come see this beautiful art piece, and I put the shard of glass on the table, and I'm like, behold, this beautiful, beautiful art piece. None of you will give two rips and two cents to what I'm saying. Here's my point. No matter how lovely that single shot is or was, in no way would it capture the glory of the whole. Do you agree on that? Justice is like a mosaic. It's not only about the single pieces. It's also about the pieces working together in a stunning whole. All too often, we believe that our desire to pursue justice can only be lifted out or understood in a single shot. But seeing justice established on the earth is to be a collective effort. Some of us may write policies to advocate for change on a systemic level. Some of us may find our expression of ministry on the streets, stopping for the one. Regardless of what your arena is, we are all called to do justice. We are all called to do justice. Let me say this over us, that there is a difference between a specific calling from God and His general call to humanity. And justice is not a specific call. It's a general call to all who profess to be believers, disciples of Christ Jesus, that we are all called to do justice. And it isn't just reserved for the gung-ho and the xiaowans. We are all called to do justice. And making sense. You know, I've said a lot, but you know, I wonder, in closing, well, this is one of two closings, so don't get too excited. I want to I distill uh, justice into three charges, into three uh, charges and three pursuits that we are called to embody and endeavor to live out on the earth. And this is what justice is. Justice is to meet 
the needs of the disadvantaged, to meet the needs of the disadvantaged. There are more than 2,100 verses in the Bible that mention poverty. Rock singer and humanitarian Bono, I quote Bono, called attention to this in his address to the National Prayer Breakfast in 2006, stating it is not an accident that, that there's 2,100 mentions of poverty in the Bible. That's a lot of airtime. By contrast, praying and prayer are mentioned less than a quarter of that. Just to put things into perspective. The Bible constantly teaches about human rights and justice. We sometimes think that these are new issues, new concerns that distract from the purity of what we call the gospel. As if the gospel could be separated from justice without demeaning it in the process. We read about Paul who took up a collection for famine relief to save strangers in a distant land. We read in Esther about how genocide began, was perpetrated, and ultimately was stopped. We read in Deuteronomy about laws intended to protect the food sources on which poor people relied. The Apostle Paul viewed ministry to the poor as so important that it was one of the last things he admonished the Ephesian church to do before he left them in his farewell address. He says this in Ephesians 4.28, If you are a thief... Quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. If you are a thief, quit stealing and give to the poor. In scripture, catch this, gives to the poor, okay? All true scriptures, especially in Matthew, gives to the poor, meeting the needs of the poor, are called acts of righteousness. Acts of righteousness. Giving generously to the poor is considered as an act of righteousness. Withholding from the poor is not stinginess. It's unrighteousness. Giving to the poor is an act of righteousness. An obedience to the statutes of God. Withholding from the poor then would be unrighteousness, a violation of God's law. It's not stinginess. It's not preference. It's unrighteousness. Are you with me? Next thing justice is. Justice is to stand up against oppression. To stand up against oppression. And this is a really daunting thing for Singaporeans. Do we agree? Yes? To stand up against oppression. And we have a problem with our culture and I'm not able to demonstrate and describe it to you, but I have a video, and uh, this video will sum up the problem with our culture. Can we put a video up? It's just five seconds. Today's first day of school, you must be a good boy and give your teacher a good impression. Oh. Remember, don't be a busybody. Things that doesn't concern you just don't care. It's none of your business. Oh. How many of you know that I was a child actor? It's none of your business. How many of you have heard that? Yeah? Don't be so capo. Don't be so overly concerned. It's none of your business. What? It's none of your business. How many of you have heard that? Yeah? Have you ever told someone that? Or how many of you have even thought that? Why, why bother? Why go and say something? It's none of my business. In a case that's often cited as an example of the bystander effect, 
A woman in Queens, New York, was attacked repeatedly over the course of 30 minutes while dozens of people nearby either saw or heard what was happening. No one physically intervened and the police were not sufficiently alerted. This wasn't an isolated event. Everyday people witness preventable crimes or tragedies and do nothing. There are at least two assumptions present in the bystander effect. The first is that if there are many people who could do something, I don't have to. The second is that if I am not the one committing the crime, I don't carry any guilt for the crime's occurrence. If we do the minimum we think is required of us, we can believe we have done enough. If we avoid doing something bad, we can believe we are good people. Martin Luther King said this, If the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, then why does our moral arc bend towards apathy? It's a famous quote from Martin Luther King. He says this, The Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. Stand up against oppression. Speak up. It is your business. Because it's your father's business. Now, I read this story uh, recently uh, from a pastor. He, he, he shares this story about a summer where he uh, set up some housing for several interns of his church uh, in a town. And it's, uh, the house was owned by one of his friends. One summer, several interns stayed at a rental home owned by one of the pastor's friends. And they were asked to take care of the lawn. None of the interns knew the owner. When the interns left at the end of the summer, the lawn was the color of dirt. Even though the owner made it clear that his sphere of concern extended to the lawn, the interns' concern stopped short of that. When we don't love someone else's sphere of concern, it's usually because we love the sphere of our own concern too much. Did the interns actively hate the green lawn? Did they long to harm the owner? No. But as a result of their inaction, they destroyed the lawn and in doing so harmed the owner. The own sphere of their concern was their internship, building friendships with other interns, exploring the city and having fun. And it was too small to encompass what their benefactor said he cared about. The interns claimed it was nobody's fault, nobody's fault that the lawn died. But the pastor said the opposite. It was the fault of everyone who lived there. Killing the lawn was abused by omission. It's abused by omission. And sometimes, you know, the injustices in the world, the injustice that we witness and see happen around us because no one's said anything and no one is standing up to the injustice. And many times we complain and we murmur and we lament of the injustices we see happening to people around us, not knowing that we can very well be part of their solution and their salvation. When you see a man, woman, a child abused or being treated without dignity, it is your spiritual responsibility to do something. It also means that we advocate for the rights of the marginalized, whether they be foreign workers, single moms or orphans. We have been entrusted with much, given an advantage in life so that we can better the lives of the disadvantaged. And the last one is this. Justice is to restore dignity and worth. 
Justice is to restore dignity and worth. C.S. Lewis writes this, that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations, these are all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a nant. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Tim Keller has this great quote about justice. He says this, Justice ought not to be done out of duty, but in response to beauty. Justice ought not to be done out of duty, but in response to beauty. That beauty is the image of God, the imago Dei, that lies within every single human being, that affords them inalienable worth and dignity. I'm making sense. The Bible teaches that the sacredness of God has in some ways been imparted to humanity so that every human life is sacred and every human being has dignity. When God put his image upon us, we became beings of infinite, inestimable value. You know, I, I do this thing, and I've said this in church often, that I like to buy tissue papers, you know, because I've runny nose, and it's just something that I like to do. And uh, one of the things that uh, the Lord put it on my heart to do was every time when I would to, uh, you know, buy, uh, you know, tissues from uh, you know, aunties who might be sitting on the street or trying to sell it in hawker centers, to say thank you. And, uh, you know, I would say thank you uh, a bunch of times to make sure they've heard me. And here's a, a reason that, that I do this, and you may or may not agree with me, but you know, if I give money and, and I just grab whatever they are trying to sell, you know, and I, I don't say anything, I treat it as I'm doing an act of charity. And in that, I am the person with resources giving charity to a person with little. And in some ways, you know, I might approach and look at the person as a beggar of sorts. A person, you know, who is after my resources. But if I say thank you, you know, I give the money and there's an exchange of goods and I take the tissue from her and I say thank you, I then have elevated the person from a beggar, from a person of little worth to a person who is selling something. And they have elevated a person from beggar, a person that no one would regard to, like a better word, a business owner. And I think that's, that's a, a, something little that we can do to restore worth and dignity. That you don't just chunk the $2 and like, yeah, whatever. But you actually make it a point to give the money, to look the person in the eye, to hand the money to the person, to take whatever the person is selling and bother to say thank you. First of all, it's basic courtesy. Second, it restores dignity and worth to a person who might have been shunned, who might have been pushed aside, who might have been ignored for the whole day. But just by you doing so, looking them in the eye, boring to take the time to say thank you, that says something. It restores dignity, value, and worth. Can we do that as a church? I'd like to end off with Three questions. I'd like us to ponder about these things even as we close the service today and uh, in the coming weeks that are ahead when we hear about different uh, injustices that are in the world. And you know, one of the great things that are gonna, that's going to happen in the next few weeks is that we're going to have, uh, of course, speakers come to bring about awareness to different needs, but also there will be, uh, on some weeks, there'll be booths set up outside for you to volunteer, for you to sow into various causes. And so I want to encourage you that if you have not... Uh, 
made uh, intentional effort in your life to do justice, this next few weeks will present itself as a great opportunity to you. First question is this. Are there forms of injustices that I am living out? Are there forms of injustices that I'm living out? Am I a purveyor of injustice? You know, you might say to yourself, I'm not the abuser or the safe owners. Uh, you know, I, I don't harm or hurt people. But there are many ways that even people in church today empower injustice in the world. If you watch pornography, besides it being a sin, it empowers the very dark and oppressive industry that is akin today to modern sexual slavery. Being rude and oppressive to a people of a different race, nationality or status is injustice. It demeans them. It removes value and worth that ought to be due to them. We can even talk about ethically sourced food and clothing and something that I haven't even dived into but I have a feeling that it will get rid of most of my wardrobe. But you know, ask yourself the question, are there any injustices that you are living out? And if so, how do you stop? Second question to ask yourself is this, are there injustices around me that I am blind to? Are there injustices around me that I am blind to? When was the last time we considered, seriously considered our own moral blindness because of our privilege, race, resources, education, social economic status? What are we blind to? Or what have we turned a blind eye to? Now here are some st statistics, you know. Um, a survey showed that a large number of foreign domestic workers in Singapore are exploited by their employers with the helpers citing bad living conditions, excessive working hours, deduction of salary and violence. Many identified as victims of forced labor that involved threats, control, leverage or force. Many respondents also reported having to use their own money to pay for meals and other essentials that should be provided by their employer by law. Child abuse cases is at 894 in 2017. It tripled in the last three years from 381. Uh, you know, there are a bunch of uh, other crazy, crazy stats. You know, um, I, I read uh, a, a statistic uh, that I think it's one in eight Singaporeans in their lifetime will experience some form of mental illness. One in eight. And most people will be diagnosed before the age of 29. It's getting younger. It's getting more frequent. What are some of the injustices around you? What are some of the things that you don't see flourishing in your arena that you can possibly play a part to bring a solution? And the last question is this. What is at my disposal? What is at my disposal? We are the most well-resourced generation to have ever lived. The most educated life expectancy is an all-time high. We are the most connected relationally as well as in terms of in the means of transportation. That affords us time, even if we choose not to believe it. How do I do justice with all that is at my disposal? We have time, money, and connectivity that generations before us don't have. You might choose to believe that you don't have time, but you know, believe me, it used to take a lot longer to travel to work, to travel to school than it does now. You have time. You have more time than the generations did before us. We just choose to occupy it differently. There's a fun feature on the iPhone now that uh, it's screen time. I tell you, it's the most sobering thing because my screen time report comes up right before I go to church and it shows up, shows up and it tells me how many times I picked up my phone during the week and what I spend most of my time on the phone on. And so, you know, I see it and then I go to church to repent. So, son or y'all need to go and check out your screen time and just be sobered with like the fact that, you know, 
Hey, I pick up my phone so many times during the day and I don't have chisel arms. That is a problem. Maybe if I attach like a 5kg weight to this, then I'll be guns like Daniel. But <laughs> what can we do? Okay. Here's a couple reasons why we don't do just as well. Okay? Humor me. Or pay attention. We see a problem, but we don't do anything about it. The internet has given us information and knowledge about the issues of the world, but we often see the issue and turn a blind eye without recognizing that we can play a part in alleviating the oppression, small as it may be. We can play a part. We often see, but do not touch the issue. We see the issue, but we do not touch the issue. Another reason is that we don't devote time into doing just as well. You know, I love going for short-term missions. It's something that I've thoroughly enjoyed. It's been such a big part of my spiritual journey. But statistics have shown that short-term missions are often more harmful than helpful. You know, people go in with as tourists and they offer short-term help and it's often more harmful than helpful. You know, you can read books like uh, When Helping Hurts or see the documentary Poverty Inc. It'll give you more insight into how short-term help is actually harming uh, these third world countries. I remember going to Haiti and, uh, and seeing bags and bags of uh, clothes that are donated to the people. And what it actually does is uh, it actually uh, kills uh, the industry that people who are there who are in the garment business actually go out of business and go homeless because clothes are being donated all the time and there is no demand for buying of clothes. And so yeah, we can get definitely more informed and we can definitely do justice better. To do justice well, we can't just touch the issue briefly. We can't just touch and go. We need to touch the issue and see it through. We need to touch the issue and see it through. Are you with me? And also, I believe that we buy into the lie that we don't believe that we have the resources to change a person's life. You know, me and Amy, we are personally sponsoring a child in Indonesia through Compassion International. It's just $50 a month and that is you know, your week's coffee budget for some of you. $50 a month, okay? I'm paying for the child's water, sanitation, basic needs, education, and even covers a birthday gift on his birthday month. $50 a month. I'm sure all of us here who are working can definitely afford that. I believe that we can all do that. I believe justice, truthfully, requires us to sow financially through whatever means. We don't do justice well because we see an issue, but we don't touch the problem. We don't do justice well because we touch an issue briefly and we don't see it through. But to do justice well, it requires us to see. It requires us to touch the issue. It requires us to sow money. To sum it all up, we don't do justice because we see no touch. Touch no see. But to do justice well, we need to see and touch. Pay money. I came out that line on Monday, and so we're <laughs> rehearsing it. <laughs> I hope that sums up this pursuit of justice. You know, you need to see and touch, pay money. <laughs> Are you with me? I'd like us to end with a, a simple prayer, and this is written by a man who uh, started uh, the Justice Conference that is a movement all around Asia and all around the world, and it's a prayer. Let's put it up. I'd like to pray this over us. God, lead us to hear the cry of the vulnerable and oppressed. Lead us to care for the weak and needy. And lead us to see others as brothers and sisters. Help us appreciate goodness, love simply, and not hide hypocrisy with rhetoric. Let us embrace justice and mercy. 
Grant us humility. Supply us with enough faith to give our lives away. And bless us with strength when we grow weary. Lord, let the knowledge of your love fuel our commitment. Inform our passions. Stir our gratitude. And help us transform the world for you and your glory. Amen.